from Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a creative who I admire a great deal for a number of reasons, not the least of which revolve around her work. Kathy Purple Cherry is an architect with a super fun name to say, superior vision, and a philosophical approach to match. Totally serious about all three of those. <laughs> Her company vision revolves around romance, passion, and yes, vision. This more than a philosophical approach that matches form and function, this approach is about feel, emotion, and experience. That's magic when done right. Kathy and her team do it right. And you're going to hear all about that right after this. I am so proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They have been presenting partners of Convo by Design for four years now, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is the absolute best in the world at what they do. Thermosol engineers the most exceptional smart shower products and steam shower systems worldwide, and they do this for a few reasons. They were the first company to design and patent the technology here in the U.S., dating back to 1958. Thermosol, a U.S.-based manufacturer in Round Rock, Texas, employs an engineering team that designs, tests, and continuously refines the product. Their quality control team tests every single steam generator before it departs the factory. Who else does that? I have the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me and, and you know this, that the idea of luxury has changed, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory, or it's just not considered a, a luxury. And if you want to add steam, you have one true option if you want the absolute best, and that's Thermosol. Mitch Altman, the third-generation CEO of this family-owned company for 65 years, continues to innovate the bathroom and shower space through technological marvels such as intelligent showering systems, sound therapy, aromatherapy, technical interfaces, and so much more. And now Thermosol, the industry leader in steam bath equipment and technology since 1958, is enhancing its already stellar family of products with a new indoor and outdoor luxury sauna collection. Each sauna is handcrafted from clear western red cedar or Nordic spruce, inspired by the brilliance of northern European sauna technology and design. Thermosol's latest collections offer luxurious features and exceptional design. A bathroom isn't luxury without steam, and there's only one option if you want the finest experience. It's Thermosol. Check them out at thermosol.com and at thermosol on the socials. Thank you, Thermosol. You know what's funny is recording on a Friday. Fridays, Fridays used to be like, I used to really look forward to Fridays, but in a, in a post pandemic world where I work from the, the, I work at a studio that's at home. I don't necessarily look forward to Fridays anymore, but what's different is that because for the last few years, there's been such a level of importance on the changing nature of home which yeah. is one of the reasons why I was so excited to, to talk to you. We're going to do an exploration into some of your projects in a little bit. Okay. But I wanted to, to just kind of like jump, the jumping off point is because architects don't design for next year, 
or five years from now per se, but you're really looking at a longer term time horizon, 50, 75, 100, 200 years. How has, how has this changed the way that you view the work you do? So you mean specifically because of the pandemic and the work from home situation? Well, yes and no. So, you know, following the, the, the Spanish flu pandemic, 1921, so many, so many things changed in the, in architecture that you see still in place today. Yeah. And I, sometimes I try to imagine what the architects of the day must have been thinking at the time. Yeah. Especially without the technology. So pandemic, not pandemic, just the nature of how things are changing right now. Yeah. I read an article the other day. Um, It was talking, we've been talking on the show about water, air, noise, pollution for years. And now it's starting to get popular, but that's something that architects think about every day. I'm just curious. I'm just curious knowing, you know, how long you've been doing this at such a high level. Yeah. How the last five or 10 years has really changed changed the nature of what you do. Um, so great question. And it actually, it, I'm going to speak to different things and they're going to be disconnected or not. So for example, the last 10 years, in my opinion, has seen the elimination or the lack of use of anything called the basement. So basements used to be spaces because we didn't have digital technology, right? We didn't have the ability to have a portable piece that walked around with us. So basements were the places that you designed to have all the fun stuff to send the kids. Well, kids nowadays don't do that at all. They do nothing but their laptops or screen time and they're portable so they don't go to basements. So what we what I have literally seen on basements is that they are, if they are built, um, they are not built with as much attention If they are built, they are um, minimally finished because spending a lot of money in a basement that's being abandoned because we're not pattern-wise using it makes no sense anymore. And then what's happened with COVID is COVID has drastically increased the cost of concrete. And lo and behold, when you're trying to hit a budget, you get rid of a basement. So people still of my age, I think, or younger than me, I'm 64 years old. I think people think, oh, I've got to build a basement. Well, the truth is, no, you don't have to build a basement. What you need is a space that's clean, dry for mechanical and Christmas stuff, right? And so those are truly now becoming six foot deep finished crawl spaces that can utilize and stack all that function without having to spend another $150,000 on just the concrete work and another three or plus $100,000 on finishing off a space that pattern-wise we are no longer using. So that's one piece. Um, I certainly, I'm sure you know, and you're, hopefully your listeners understand the movement that happened probably about 20 plus years ago in the work environment of biophilia or biophilic design. And so that everybody understands it's about how as humans, we relate to nature, to the views, to the greenery, to the light and how that affects our mood. So while we have obviously seen that in our work environment, we are more so even seeing that now, obviously in the built environment of homes. Specifically, 
um, Josh, because of this working from home, right? So as people are beginning to work more and more from home, they want some flexibility to have quality spaces that they're going to be in for working. And I want to, for a minute, go off on a tangent. So what is true for me is I'm an aging woman. So I've been in the profession for 35 years. And so as I get closer to what I call the end of life, and by the way, end of life is not a negative term for me. It just means I'm on the backside of life. And your whole perspective changes when you get to this place. And so for me, a conversation that I have a lot with my clients, having nothing to do with the pandemic, is one of two things happens for us when we get older. We either want to spend all that time with our partner that we've been with for decades, or we still are used to the pattern of doing independent things, and therefore we don't want to be around our partner. And that is a question that I actually ask my my couples. For me personally, I love being able to do my work, but also be able to hear my husband say, honey, you want a glass of iced tea and still be able to watch or observe the television. So that means I need my studio to be front and center in the middle of the community space. And that's exactly what's happening in my final home in Charlottesville. So my studio has an interior nine foot glass window and then big doors that open both into the kitchen, living room and dining room. My studio is front and center, right in the middle of that public space, physically, visually and verbally connected, yet has the ability to be closed off if it's a disaster. And if I care if it's a disaster, right? So I think that what I think that how a structure changes on the interior is dependent upon where a couple or a user is in their life. So if they're raising younger children, then the strategy is you've got to get your work environment far away so that you can tell the kids that you're going to the grocery store and sneak upstairs so they don't track and hunt you down, right? That's true. Otherwise, um, you want your workspace to be wherever your family and your and your partner are. I don't know that I've answered your question, but I kind of went off in a few tangents. Well, it's funny because, you know, it's it's not a it's not a Q&A. You know, I every conversation I have, I, I love doing this. I've been doing this for quite a while and every conversation I have is different. And I'm informed by the work of the creative with whom I'm speaking. And, you know, having looked at a lot of your work for, for a while now, and we're going to go to some of your work and, and I want to break down some of the ideas that you're talking about, because I think I think it makes it makes perfect sense to me. It's funny. Being a native Angelino from Southern California growing up, you know, I I was a kid in the 70s. I was a teenager in the 80s. And this idea of biophilic design, you know, really started in Southern California with, gosh, what I just love, I would love to go back and be a hippie in the 1970s in Southern California. I really would. <laughs> it would you know what I mean? Just It's don't... not too late. <clears throat> well, you know, it's funny. You say that, but it kind of is because wow. Southern California in the 1970s, you know, most recently when we moved out to, I'm, I'm living in Tulsa, Oklahoma now, um, working on a, on a design house project that has a basement, by the way, and I want to talk to you about that in a second. Okay. But in the 19th, you know, moving out from the, from the beach cities 
a couple of years ago. When we first moved to Manhattan Beach, the, the beach bungalow we were living in didn't have air conditioning, didn't need air conditioning, maybe three days a year. We were right on the fog line. And it was like maybe three or four days a year. It got warm enough that it was a little bit uncomfortable. <clears throat> but we would just go outside, you know, grab that glass of iced tea or a glass of wine and go hang outside. And when we left, that three or four days a year over the course of 15 years had turned really into probably four or five weeks. Got it. That is, that From is a, a that, that yep. well, look, that is a demonstrable difference. And it didn't yes. happen. It didn't, it didn't happen overnight. It yes. was, you know, three or four days. Next year it was four or five days. A couple of years later, it was six or seven days. And it just incrementally got different. So right. now in, in the Hollywood Hills, where those amazing, you know, I think of Frank Zappa in the 1970s, you know, yes. his house amazing but you know macrame and god's eyes on the wall and and just the whole idea of opening every window and opening every door and having seals and croft on the radio it just seems so so, for, so josh it seems to me that your definition of um hippie is that you have that ventilation that open window because well my daughter has a god's eye and macrame on her bedroom wall so she's a hippie for sure. And her mother is a little bohemian. I Well, maybe it's more bohemian than hippie, but I, but I feel like, you know, coming out of the 70s when biophilic design in Southern California was not yeah. just a, a trend, but it was, it was a staple. It was, yes. part of, it was part of life. And because of that, this idea of bringing the outdoors in and the indoors yeah. out and yeah. having open doors, open walls, open windows was just, you know, and books were written about it in the 1970s in Southern California. And then this idea started to translate. Now, being in Tulsa, there's no way we could live that way. But I want to I want to specifically speak to biophilic design and how it has most significantly impacted our built environment. And it's not in the residential home. It's actually in our commercial environments. Right. So everybody it really influenced that we used to put the bullpen in the middle of a floor plate and then all the private offices flanked around like a donut, right? And that's what gave um, um, CFOs and COOs the best office spaces, but didn't give any quality of life, obviously, to the individuals doing the work. So that reversal of where now your offices are inside the core and all glass, but then you put your bullpen or your big open space against your exterior, that's the most significant impact to me of biophilic design. And it also influenced, began to influence, obviously, our academic environments as well. So I, it's funny because I don't, I wasn't thinking about it at all from a residential standpoint because I've always been a view person or a view connecting person as a designer. So it's incredibly important to me to have short and long distances through the entire house at many points. So I'm much more of a, as an architect, I've had the great honor of being able to work on larger pieces of property. So I can take advantage, obviously, of trying to create those vistas. Whereas when you're doing tight little urban spaces, it's much more difficult to do by nature. So I am so happy about this because we're going to, we're going to go down this road a little bit and do some okay. exploration. And, and I love this. This is what makes this so exciting for me. I recently took a tour that I think you would have absolutely loved. 
So okay. here in here in Oklahoma, eastern Oklahoma, where I am, um, Bartlesville, which is about 45 minutes away from Tulsa, is okay. where Pr- Price Tower resides. Uh, okay. Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright's one and only skyscraper. Yep. So I was given a tour and, an, and I did an interview from there and I'm going to be publishing that shortly. What I found so sup- just amazing and surprising about the whole thing was, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright obviously lauded as, as one, of our, one of our greatest architects, living or dead, one of the greatest of all time. Yep. But I will tell you, some of his ideas revolving around quality of life are really kind of surprising. Not everything's falling water. Um, this was right. Mr. Price's office is at the, on the 19th floor of Price Tower. And just outside his office is where his assistant would be. And his executive assistant's office was, Kathy, you would, it would, it, you would recoil knowing what we were just talking about. <laughs> It was, it was so small and, yeah. you know, Frank Lloyd Wright loved glass and loved these open views and every other place in the building, even the small stairwells and the small hallways, but still opened up wherever possible. But in this one place where Mr. Price's executive assistant would work, they built a wall that was just over, I would say four feet so that she could not see the view. She could not see outside. And it was done, obviously, and intentionally, so that she could not enjoy the 19th floor view, but that she would face her typewriter and do her work. I also think back in the times when he was alive, obviously, or, uh, or designing, I think that it's true that the human population was not as open, just like like not you didn't reveal things to employees. You didn't engage employees in conversations. You didn't do that. So the thought I would think would be and yes, I do hate high walls. So my studio is all everybody works on one floor. Everybody. I don't even have an office, just so you know. So we're all in this open space. Um, I think that back then leaders were more private. And so the thought of having a secretary looking at you, seeing you, seeing that you're blowing your nose or having a phone call or fiddling around with something is not something that was um, was not something that was done 40 years ago. Because we're really talking about that far back kind of 30 years, right? When was the building designed? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, uh, 1950s. It opened in 56. Yeah, so we've been longer. Yeah. 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 So well, what was you what was funny? Remember how private the world was in '56. Now I was born in '59, and I think you're saying that you're ten years later than me, probably, right? Yeah. Roughly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is that she could see into his office, so he could summon her when he wanted her, but she couldn't view outdoors. She couldn't see outside, uh, which I which I think was fascinating, <laughs> but. But no interesting. daydreaming, no, no daydreaming, daydreaming just works, just yes. work. That's all you do. That's true. But, but here's what's interesting. And I want to explore this a little bit because um, so my first career is in broadcast and I still have friends who are in radio. And one of my good friends is in L.A. in radio. We talk all the time and I just laugh when he tells me these stories about they're trying to pull everyone back to the office. 
it's a major issue right now, GDP, economy, and pulling people back. But you know, it's interesting because you brought up the commercial space. They're never going to get people back in the office again, unless they think differently about the corporate structure and the corporate architectural hierarchy and the way things are. The way that office buildings are, and I talk to my friend about this all the time, it's the same thing where you have this series of bullpens in the center, right, with those horrible cubicles. And then you have all of the all of the glass, all of the windows for the offices with the doors. And then they say, well, we'll have some shared office space uh, or rather shared offices for private conversations and private calls. But what inevitably winds up happening is people in the bullpen take their computer, they take everything, they go camp out in one of these private offices and spend all day there, not for a call or for its stated purpose, but because they want some privacy and they don't want to be stacked on top of each other. And I think it's fascinating because I I guess office space by and large, they don't utilize the skills of architects, indoor architects who really look at the structure and look at the space and look at the purpose and the function and say, you know what, if you want people back in the office, you have to make it more hospitable. You have to yes. make it some, some place where they want to be, right? Right. Right. So, and I so how say, do you do that? Well, so uh, at, at its very basic level, with no architectural involvement at all, it's those system furniture. It's the systems that come in where you have the option of a three foot, a 42 inch, a 48 or whatever, in your partitions. And I can sincerely tell you, I don't begin to understand why tall cubicles are used anymore at all. Because I think that the visual connection to people that you work with is incredibly important. We are very much a collaborative based studio. And so I've always been a big believer that we learn from listening to others. So when I was in the 1970s out of school, was it 70s? Yeah, late 70s. I remember sitting in the corner of a brick office and I could hear everything that moved across the ceiling line, hit the two walls and came down to me. So while I was 50 feet away from the principal, I heard all of his phone calls because of the dynamic of the acoustics and what was happening in terms of the sound transfer. So I believe in people being able to witness live, real time, collaborative conversations, collaborative work, be it difficult or easy, all of those aspects. So I think that ideally employers don't purchase these partitions anymore. And I think it's a double-edged sword. So let's go to the employee for a second. The phone has done some pretty um, powerful negative impacts to the work environment, right? So people utilizing their phones for personal purposes throughout their day within a work environment when they are still earning dollars to do a job, but yet somehow it's okay to utilize this phone. I think further with that, I think opening up an environment is a positive thing because I think it it encourages appropriate work. It encourages, you know, Um, being productive. So that to me is also important. You are correct that we still have a lot of structures that are in on this earth that aren't properly designed. And I don't think in my lifetime or your lifetime or my children's lifetime, we will ever get rid of those bad buildings because we've got so much of it built. But I would tell you that all buildings that are being built now, most of them implement that 
biophilic design strategy of keeping um, the larger open area, bullpen area that we would say into an open space on our perimeter of the wall. It's funny when it first started, there was something else that came in, which was it would be great if we create this cafeteria or this co-dining area. Well, to be honest, those spaces are not being used at all. They really are not working the way that they thought they would work. Or gee, we're gonna have a little soft seating area where you can go play ping pong or something. Those spaces are not working. People like to do their job, but I think they like to do it in a quality space where they can connect and engage with the outside, both in short and long distances visually. And they like um, to be surrounded by other creative people. And they like to feel like everybody is kind of has the same goal, I think. And so I, when you expressed to me, Josh, that you think that, you know, people will come out of the bullpen and then go into their little private office. It's funny, I kind of see the opposite happening, but maybe that's because I'm spoiled by my own environment, which is I've got a group of fantastic people that love working in a collaborative way. And I recognize that that's not true to all professions because people do different kinds of work, which requires different environments. You are listening to my conversation with architect Kathy Preple-Cherry. We will be right back. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful incredibly durable and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, and and mine was in broadcast and my, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I have, um, you know, I have kids who are college age and they're in school and my wife and I tell them all the time, it's like, whatever you do, and I have the ultimate respect for, for people who are in sales. I was in sales for a large part of my career. Don't go into sales, you know, go into something that, that can feed your soul as well as your pocket. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to change up what you just said. So if your gift is sales, go into sales because it feeds your soul. So some no. people are magnificent <laughs> at sales. It just wasn't your bailiwick. No, no, listen. Listen, I will tell you something. I, 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 am, I was very, very good at sales. Uh, yes. Absolutely. And, and did, not, did not like it should have, you know, would have, could have gone into something else. And I figured out why. It's not the career. It's not the sales. It's the, it's the philosophy behind it. It's the... It's the it's what everybody's kicking back on now, driven to just 
hit a number as opposed to quality of life, which brings us back to the, to the conversation at hand, yeah. which is what, what architects and designers do is they increase the quality of life. They, they make life better. I have always believed that. And I, I, I would highly suggest that an inanimate object like a building can so significantly make life better by how it's structured, how it's organized. And because, you know, as I was being brought up in a sales career, it was like, I don't, we want to make the office inhospitable because we don't want you here. We want you <laughs> out talking to clients and doing things. So don't spend a lot of time here. And I think what's really interesting is the idea now about creating spaces that are so multifunctional yeah. and are so purposeful. And, and for me, that's what's so exciting about this, the, the, next, the next iteration. I feel like we're entering, and I've said this before, I feel like we're entering into a, a golden age of design and architecture. And you are in such a remarkable spot to take advantage of that. I'm just curious if you view, if you view that the same way, which is why I always enter with the question, like, I don't always enter, you know, sometimes it's different, but this idea of how have things changed for you? Right. Because as a creative, as an artist, as an architect, as a designer, yeah. you know, you have, don't you have to keep changing? Yes, I do. But I think it's not, it's not specifically about changing as much as it is evolving and you evolve certainly because the environment is changing, but you also evolve by age. And I think those two things together kind of make for the best work, to be honest, because you are bringing forward experience or history, be it negative or positive, that helps inform, you know, going forward. It's interesting because I'm going to open up with you. Uh, I might go off tangent for two seconds, but it's a good Perfect. opportunity. So here's what's up, what. What I think has also happened in my time as I've observed this. So if we cast back to pre-social media, pre-internet stuff, nobody knew how disorganized or organized people were. Nobody saw things that somehow fueled a movement that made people feel like they had to become something that they really may not have been. And so when all of these self doer DIYers started happening in terms of on television and gee, you can organize your closet, you can organize your kitchen, you can organize your everything. We've actually created a young group, most significantly of young women to me, who feel like they have to be that way. And it has really put this huge pressure on everything has to have a place, everything has to have order, everything has to look perfect. And it's funny being the older, on the older side of this, I have both glee and sadness in this world. My glee comes because there's nothing more beautiful to look at than a highly organized space. And even a highly organized, very creative, visual element, be it a perfect pantry, a perfect cabinetry, et cetera, all then influenced or informed by the architecture. The counter is the stress to have to keep up with that, being that I'm an older woman who has raised three children and multiple animals. And I'm thinking to myself, if we're living our life in this hamster wheel 
of everything having to be in its perfect place and its perfect thing because it has to be visible and all the time. And that's what it is. And I actually think we've created this. I don't think this just came out of young people being born. I think this came out of us influencing it by what we've put forth on all of the television, all of the social media. And hey, this is the way you're supposed to be. Well, I want to tell your listeners, hey, that's not the way life really is. So I'm good with the fact that you want some things organized, but I really want you to also be honest with yourself about what you don't want to fret over. And so for me, it's really important to have the dialogues about what are the patterns and what the patterns are, positive or negative for your partner. Because if your partner is negatively impacted by a pattern, then you might want to figure out that 40 years from now, you may not be married anymore. So I've been married for 43 years. Got it. So I've been married for a long time and I understand how the in not I don't want to go my specific, but generally the way men experience um, space or what's important to them is different than the way women experience the same thing. You know, um, many men can put something down on the counter and leave it there for three weeks and it doesn't bother them at all. Many women watch it every single day wondering when the hell you're going to move it and then get angry after three days, right? And so the catch is, where's the happy medium in order to make for a successful marriage? Because to me, the family and the marriage unit is more important ultimately than anything else, right? So anything that I can do as an architect to to support what are the hyper things or the super important, but at the same time have conversation about how to positively support it not always being beautiful, it being able to be closed, it out of sight, out of mind to me would be the attitude. So if I'm a person of high anxiety, then I don't want to have everything exposed on all of these shelves. Are you kidding me? Who wants to live there? So I just kind of took you off on a tangent. And I actually think this has all been influenced by all of these television and Instagram things. And I worry for the stress that it brings on our young women to have to be perfect all the time. Perfect shelves, perfect cabinets, perfect everything, even though it's beautiful. And that, and that makes perfect sense to me. And that's why I think it's, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love to do with creatives such as yourself is to go to the work that you do. And, mm -hmm. you know, having heard your story and you walking through sort of your philosophy on this to actually look at the work that you do. And, and the first one I wanted to, to walk through with you is yep. Aquaterra. Okay. Yep. I feel like while this is clearly a large space, um, it exemplifies some of the very ideas you were just talking about. Yep. Tell me, tell me about this project and for, for whom it was created. So this is a, this couple. And um, so he is a leader in the health care world. And he is now a global leader, not specifically for um, weight loss and, and quality of life and, and um, work-life balance, et cetera. And he was specific, he specifically is an incredibly creative man. 
So what's true about this particular client is that he was always open to any concept, any idea, which is not always what happens. Often you'll have a client who comes with very specific desires and wants, and therefore you kind of are more staying within a lane, whereas this client was very open to any conversation. But what he did want to be always is one side of the house was water and the other side of the house was a vineyard, which was not his. So thus the naming of aqua terra, water and land. So everything about the orientation of the through views of the house, where all the glasses, et cetera, is all about connecting to those two environmental elements. And then to me, it was um, a, it was conversations around always being able to feel um, as though you were outside or of the earth or of the woodland or of the stonework, et cetera. So that's what you're seeing in Aquaterra. Then what always happens in the development of any project, at least for us, is kind of um, one of the, you know, when you are entertaining, do you want to be an integral part of the party or do you want to be a separated part of the party? And obviously the biggest movement of the 1970s and 80s through until current times is this single open space great room. Everything's in the same area. You can visually and verbally connect with anybody during socialization. And so I think that what happens in Aquaterra is there is one great room with the dining, no formal dining room, no formal living room of any kind, one big space and further supported by the fact that the huge screen porch has a full fold away nano wall. So you almost, again, 30% larger increase your entire entertaining space by opening up that outside, which is what I love about screen porches, particularly in the appropriate climates, is that it helps you to really just double your entertaining area. Um, so that is that project. Any specific questions to it as you're looking at it? Yeah, um, so a couple. Uh, first of all, the when you talk about minimal shelving, like like you were speaking about before that, yes. I, 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 see that I see that present. In your yep. in your design here, other yeah. things too. You know, in the in the master bedroom, there's a there's a there's a seating area off to the side yeah. where the fireplace is, and and it just seems like such a such a nuanced idea. It looks like there are pocket doors there as well to to close that off. That's also connected to the outdoors. There's a there's a hidden door here, which I yeah. am a huge fan of hidden door. I have. I don't know why, but it's one of those things. I just love the idea behind hidden doors. You want to hear the funny thing is? Yeah. Hidden doors are hidden, but everybody wants to know where they are. So they're technically not really hidden. And so when people say to me, oh my gosh, on the big house that you see, the really big white one, there's a hidden door panel in the office. And people say, oh my gosh, why would you reveal where that is? Because the whole reason of the request of the hidden door was so that it was cool. It's a cool factor and you always yeah. want to show the cool factor. It doesn't matter if it has a safe located in it. You're still going to open it every time somebody comes to the house because it's fun. Yeah. So in Aquaterra, I would tell you one of the reasons when you see the minimal shelving in Aquaterra specifically, what you what you may not be able to understand from the pictures is that a lot of the walls are glass 
while they're punched openings, they're still glass. So there's a very limited area for shelving, millwork, built-ins, et cetera, in that particular uh, project. Now, though that, that couple also is closer to my age. And as we get older, we try to purge. We don't try to keep. And what we do keep, we want to shove into a box. And I think that, yeah, so that is of those clients. Yep. Yeah. And also the the other element to that, which I think bears mentioning, is just all of the all of the additional, it's so extra, but it's it's all things, the indoor pool, the wine yeah. room, just how everything was situated. It's not that it's just, okay, we have all this space, so we're going to put things there. Like it it feels like everything was placed purposefully. It was very like, intentional. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was very intentional. And speaking of that, you the next project is is another one that I I think is absolutely stunning. Am I pronouncing this right? Salem Farm Modern? Yes, Salem, Salem Farm. In, yep. So I, by the way, I should, I should say that as I always do, yes, I, I understand this is an audio podcast and we're talking about a visual uh, projects, but if you go to purplecherry.com and click on portfolio, you can you can walk through some of these spaces with us, which I've gotten feedback and people seem to really enjoy this. I know that I do. And Salem Farm, this, this modern project. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I, I just, I have to mention is just looking at the image juxtaposed to, I don't know if it's a lake or a river, but how the property is on a bluff overlooking the water, the where, where it's positioned and how it's positioned, it looks like it's supposed to be there. It, it looks yeah. like an outcropping of the earth itself. It looks like it was supposed to be there, situated that way. Take me through your process of site planning and f- finding where the, where the home, where the project is supposed to be, because I, I think that that's something that you do very, very well. I appreciate that. Thank you, Josh. Um, So it's interesting. That was probably one of the more difficult properties that I worked on. And and you wouldn't know it looking at it. But actually, at the very point of land, this piece of property, they purchased two lots side by side so that they could actually be at the very end of a road. The catch is the very tip of the road is actually a public-owned property. So it had a road that literally went right through those two lots to get to this. Took me about a year and a half, but I moved that public access. So I moved it down the pay, down away from the water so that I could get more expansive land in general. And then what happened for that part is that we wanted to make sure to develop two homes because there's two lots. So you see the small guest house sits on the further one, which was only two acres. And the one forward of that is 11 acres, roughly from memory. So the two together didn't want to be joined because we always have conversations about, you know, resale value or if the children want to sell it or how it goes, or if you've got to get rid of one, what do you do? And thus the reason you see a guest house that has three bedrooms and you see a principal structure. The second thing that then happens for me for view properties is it's all about it's all about what is that orientation in relationship to the how the sun is moving 
and where the greatest vistas are. And you are correct in your interpretation of it's an outcropping with active erosion on its vertical shear face of whatever hundred and hundred vertical feet, active erosion. Um, obviously that erosion will never get all the way to this house. But at the same time, the, the land was also rising up towards that cliff. And so as it moves up, what you've got to think about is how you lift the site either by fill or you lift the site by structure in order to get yourself up so that when you're sitting in soft seating, you can still rotate and see view. So all of those things come into my mind as a designer when I am working on view properties, which all of our properties are view properties, I would say significantly 95 of them, 95% of them. Then the next piece to me was what this particular client's goal was. They are from Texas. They now live here permanently in the Annapolis area. And they wanted a home that um, first was able to display all of the artifacts that they had collected over decades of travel. So he was in a corporate position that created a lot of travel, as well as relocation in foreign countries. And then he also made a lovely um, um, memory with his two girls that every year he took one of them, each of them, but independently of each other on a very significant trip. Pretend it was to go to Alaska to go fly fishing. Pretend it was to go to Cape Horn in Africa to see whatever. So these kids are very well traveled. They're grown now. And so he's got so many fantastic artifacts and you're not able to see them because he had, didn't have them all up at the time. You can see some of them. But the center gallery space was made as a big volume so that it could not only put those displays on the gallery wall, but also that space could be used for reception or dining um, as a powerful place, thus the double story volume. Then the house was designed so that it was about what I call the daily living for an aging couple. Um, when I say aging, my, again, my age. So the whole master suite and office space, et cetera, which is more of the private quarters is to the right of the front door. The common shared space is to the left of the front door, be it the great room, kitchen, back kitchen and dining. And then the two private bedroom suites are able to be closed off so that if they don't want to condition it, if they don't want to clean it, they can close it off or not. And they are on the far left of the space. Obviously, the piece that comes towards us in the picture is actually the backside of the three-car garage. Um, what I loved about this building, obviously, besides its pod work and its kind of kind of modernism, it's not starkly modern at all. It still says home because of the gable shape and the gable forms, but it is definitely a cleaner, more modern structure. One thing that's very important to me specifically, Joss, so I was raised with a special needs brother. He was Down syndrome. And then I adopted a special needs child from Russia 29, 28 years ago. And while both of them are more physically able-bodied, um, I have always been involved in what's purposeful architecture, which is environments that are for living and learning for adults and children with disabilities. It's really important to me that I build homes that are 
capable of going all the way through life. So I get into that garage and I have no step. I am fully one floor. When we're doing that, we're having to cut and fill dirt. So if I've got to get in them from the backside of a garage, but have no step from the garage through the house, no step over to the master, while there may only be one accessible full point of access, the reality is it's still all fully accessible. And then I cut and fill grade, obviously, in order to make those things work, but still get the views and still get the water runoff. So I went from the design side into the micro, you know, engineering side of what we do to have those outcomes. So a couple of points. And by yes. the way, thank you. Thank you for that. I think that's I think that's fantastic because you wouldn't know that necessarily by by viewing this. But a couple of questions. No, you wouldn't. First question is, if somebody says, says to you with this project, you know, I want a little more glass. Would you have been able to find a place to put more glass? Uh, no. How's that? <laughs> no. The answer is no. It's I mean, amazing. not if you want to have a closet and not if you want to have a vanity and not if you want to have a toilet room. No, I can't. Well, it's, it's absolutely, seriously, Kevin, it's amazing. I mean, and what you did with this, and, and it, this, all this all goes back to site planning and the things that you have yeah. to do before you get to the actual build itself. But like when, I, when I'm looking at this bathroom and you've got the tub situated in a corner yeah. with this incredible view and yeah. someone who's, who's bashful or shy, I mean, but at the same time where it's situated, there are walls for some privacy Sure. But but not not much. And, and I think that you don't need it in this space. And that's what's so, right. so remarkable. Um, well, I would share with you so that so that, you know, you can't do that in every home. Again, remember, I shared it's the end of a line and they own yeah. the at last piece. And yeah. so they basically control who's there except once a year when a guy from the county comes out and drives across the road, right? And so they really share it. And I'll tell you a second thing, just so that everybody knows, here's this. As a woman, because I'm a big bath girl, as a woman, we get to a point where we don't really give a shit what people think or what they see. And so we get to this age where we figure if we've birthed enough children, it's like everybody's seen everything. So who really cares? So we're happy to kind of momentarily get naked. We might be seen from a distance. We don't want to show off at all. We're embarrassed to sell, but we really don't care. That's the key. Okay. I love that. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, Good. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about specifically yes. is so the decision was made for a galley style kitchen yes. and I'm just I'm curious and maybe it's because of the orientation wait um, are you on the back kitchen or are you on the front kitchen which one are you looking at I guess well I didn't realize that there were two so I guess yes I'm there are you got to go to the black one with the low chairs that's the main kitchen the galley is the back kitchen Okay, so here's what's interesting. Um, yeah. I'm trying to, and sometimes it's tough to put this together, but now that you yes. mentioned that, so I do see what I guess is a hood. So is that an induction? Yes, it is. Okay, all right. Yeah, and you'll okay. notice there's no sink there. Yeah. The reason there's no sink is if you look through the right opening, you're going to see the sink that looks straight out on the view. 
So the sink cleanup area slid there because it's in very close proximity to the front kitchen, but it allowed a cabinet to go on the exterior wall with window view, which is what she wanted, but she, but she but we still wanted that full wall of glass in the great space. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. so fascinating because I have never seen now I've seen a lot of dual kitchens. I've seen triple yeah. kitchens. I've seen but I've never seen one like this. So the galley the galley kitchen is is okay so now i get it the galley kitchen is purely functional and yes. and you've you've got gas there for someone who yep. wants to you've got the oven the ovens plural yep. um you this is a working galley kitchen but then you've got the family style kitchen so you've got it yes. in oh i love that yep. I you love call that. it almost like an, an you'd almost call it like an um it's more of an entertaining kitchen it certainly yeah. has the ability to function there's refrigeration and cooking abilities uh one of the things that i think influences the ability to do that on this project is the age of the clients so again if I had done this for a younger couple and they had little children growing up, I'm not going to do this at all because I want mom to be front and center. So mom's going to have her sink and everything in the main kitchen. The kitchen's going to be able to see the common areas so she can watch her children and be an integral part. But as we get older, we don't cook. That's the second hint, right? Like we get to a point where we're perfectly fine with bowls of cereal or or soup, or we're going to pick up something as we're going home. So therefore, that front piece for them is solely mostly about, gee, if on occasion they want to cook in front of friends, then that's what they can do. So that's really specific to the client. Yeah, that makes sense. And what's interesting is, and I, you know, not to not to dwell on this area, but I, but it does certainly need to be mentioned is the the Salem Farm guest house. Yes. Which, you know, something that's really interesting about this is I think that it's not matchy matchy, but right. it is, it is purely complimentary. And I think that yes. that's, that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. That's a fantastic little structure. Yeah. It's got full private suite left, full private suite right. And in that little, that front space that's only 32 feet wide and 20 feet deep, 19 feet deep, the vertical lift that happens as a result of those windows in the big gable makes this space when you're in it feel very large. And yet it's the kitchen, dining and family room all in one space that's 19 by 32. So... It does not feel small when you're in it, and it doesn't look small when you're looking at the picture. Just out of curiosity, with yeah. all of the glasses, is, is it is it performative as well? So yeah. in the winter, when it gets cold, yeah. in the summer, when yeah. it gets hot, it is. Yeah. yeah, because there's other things that you take into place. So obviously, if you make four solid walls, you're better off from an R value than anything else. But nobody can live in four solid walls. So, right? And um, what is true is that double pane glass versus triple pane glass, it's not worth the financial dollar for the very limited R value that you increase. So what you will always see is your double pane thermally broken, um, obviously glass. Um, and so thermally insulated glass. So you're 
Adding another window is about ramping up your tonnage on your heating system, which then ties to your geothermal or to your solar array or whatever it is that you're doing from an energy standpoint. And a lot of our clients do install geothermal. So no, you're not going to feel any more discomfort because you're going to offset it by your heat flow. And just out of curiosity, is there geothermal on this on this project? Yes, because sir. Okay, because one of the things, you know, in looking at the image and especially the 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 far away yep. um i'm looking for power lines i don't i don't see power I lines on, i don't see a weatherhead on on either the main structure or the guest house so i'm that definitely piqued my interest right so most clients nowadays all power is underground it's brought in underground for wherever the closest pole is and for your readers when we go geothermal it takes away those outside units so those units that everybody knows is the things that make fan noise and spin, those units are tied to a heating and cooling system. And those units are eliminated when you go the geothermal. Thankfully, the tax credit is moving back up. Eight years ago, it was 100% tax credit. Then it dropped down, dropped down, dropped down. I think it got down to like 20 or 15. Now I think it's moved back up to 38 or is getting ready to be 38 well worth it as it starts to move up from a tax strategy standpoint. The hard part is that to put those wells in, which is technically what makes geothermal are those vertical wells. Those wells can run anywhere from 75,000 to 200,000, depending upon rock, depending upon the scale of house and therefore the number of wells. The beauty, though, of geothermal is that with the tax credit, you get a write-off not only your wells, you get a write-off anything and everything related to the system, which includes the ducting and the controls and the indoor units. So it's a, it's it's definitely, you'll see a payback on a geothermal in about seven years. Okay. And and what's, you know, what's interesting, too, and I'm just curious your, your take on this. So yeah. beautiful metal roofs, but no solar. And so do you, I, I get it. I get, I get the face. No, yeah. I'm happy to talk this one through. I'd love to talk this one through. Yeah. So, so roofs for me, what's true is that I think roofs can be some of the most beautiful parts of the home. And a lot of people don't understand specifically when looking at an image that a wood shake roof is what's bringing the beauty to the house. They're just looking at the house and they're thinking it's, any house, in any book, in any magazine, and they're going, oh, I just really love this. And then I go, and do you understand that a large component of it is softening that happens with a wood-shaped roof? And then I show them an asphalt shingle and they go, oh, I didn't really realize that. I said, yeah, a big part of it is the emotion of that wood-shaped roof. And yet wood-shaped roofs are the most expensive roofs we can use right now. Post-COVID, metal comes second, copper being the highest behind that being the painted metals. And asphalt all day long is going to be a quarter of the cost of a metal or wood shape roof. My personal house in Charlottesville is 410 steel. So do you know what that does? It's mm -hmm. a completely, okay, so 410 steel is your heaviest raw seal. So it completely rusts. My entire roof on my house in Charlottesville is all rusted. So it's kind of a fantastic emotional feel of a structure yeah. that's been on the mountain for a hundred years because it looks like a barn where the roof has rusted, right? So 
Now, when we talk about solar, here's the challenge with solar. It's not a positive or a negative yet. There's kind of, and I'm not going to talk from the highest level of knowledge, right? I'm going to speak from all the parts that I know. So Tesla shingles look great and they go great on modern homes because they're these great big, long, singular monolithic applications. You don't know that they're shingles, but they're very contemporary looking because of their scale and because they're black. So they only fit on a certain type of architecture. You don't do a classic Georgian home and put a Tesla shingle on it. It doesn't work. So then the next thing that you have as an option and have had in the industry is just simple solar arrays added to the roof, right? Mm -hmm. And those are ugly as sin. So the catch-22 is you hire an architect to do a beautiful house and then you want solar. So the question becomes, where is the application so that it's not seen? I have this, I, and we do have houses that have solar application. Um, let's keep going down this path for a second. So what is also true is Tesla is considerably more expensive than the solar arrays that just the mounted panels. You usually find that people don't use Tesla. We've only had Tesla used once because of their cost. Frequently, you don't have enough roof area because the roof is being designed to be cut down. You don't have enough roof area to get the orientation. So on sale and farm, Southern exposure is front door, not back. I would have said the whole back of this house could have gone to solar because it's um, not visually seen and you're way up on a cliff. So who's going to see this array? But the problem to me was on that, we're, we're north facing. And if you talk to any solar technician, they're going to tell you it doesn't work on the north face. Um, there is a new product that's come out now that's beginning to replace shingles, become smaller scale, be able to be used in a shingle application, and it has different colors. The problem is that it hasn't made itself across the country and in certain states yet. So, for example, it might be something supported right now because there's enough product being shipped to New York, but none of the vendors down here have it, and therefore none of the tradesmen are certified to install it. So we just haven't gotten to the best place. When people ask me, what do you do from an energy standpoint, more than anything else, your best dollars spent are going for the spray foam insulation and going for the geothermal. That's your best thing to do first. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I and I cannot thank you enough for, for that explanation. Sometimes the technical stuff is the most fun. It really is. Yeah. Well, it is. It is definitely it's not the sexy side, but it's a big part of how yeah. things go together. Yes. Yeah. So for sale and farm, oh, I it'd be like a holy shit moment. I would certainly put solar on anytime client would want to put solar on, but I'm not going to put solar on when it doesn't work. It's either too expensive, it's not at its appropriate place, or it's northern facing, then why even chase it, right? I'm not yeah. going to rotate a house for solar orientation if the view is north. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does work, and and I love that. And all of your projects work, and I, I love Thank your you. work, and I'm so Thank appreciative. You. Thank you for, for coming on and talking to me today. I think You're this was so great. You're so welcome. Very nice you. to meet you. Oh.
Design Hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery-style space with a thoughtful display of products, purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery. High-end faucets, luxury tile, natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available, stop by to find your inspiration, collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. Thank you for taking the time to talk, Kathy. I loved our chat, and I, I really did. And, and this is why I love doing this show and why I love having these conversations and bringing them to you. It is so rewarding for me to share these stories. Thank you to my partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Design Hardware, and Moya Living for your continued and unwavering support of the show and for the design community. For more stories like these from the design community, please make sure you are subscribing to the podcast so you receive new episodes automatically when they're published. That way, you never miss a single episode. Convo by Design is available everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And... I would be remiss if I didn't tell you how much I love the emails and guest suggestions and show submissions, uh, idea submissions rather. So keep them coming, convo by design at outlook.com and follow us on Instagram at convo by design with an X. Thanks for listening. Until next week, be well and take today first. 